Friends were live. Hey, John. Hey, Marcy. How's it going? You know, almost ready to be done with living in the times of Rona. Lies. <laughs> Lies. You're as delusional as Dolores. <laughs> oh, listeners, welcome oh. <laughs> back to another episode. The final episode of this season where we break down Westworld season three. Welcome back to the Pop Culture Theologians. I'm John. Um, the ever spiteful Marcy uh, is also here. And then we also have another amazing special guest with us you know her we know her i love her i'm the secretary of her fan club um <laughs> kirsten welcome back hello yay. yay i'm so excited you're here i had to bring in backup for this episode I was <laughs> probably good to have another voice in the room since I honestly sounded like moaning Myrtle in the last episode. So rightfully so, because it was <laughs> a hot mess. Yeah. Hot mess. So John, where can, where can we find you online if we wanted to, uh, to just kind of take a peek at your life and your voice? Um, you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, and the Twitters at jerickson85. I'm not changing it because I'm running for office, and I don't have time to do that type of an extensive rebranding. Um, Marcy, what about you? You can find me at Magdalena on Fire, uh, which I think I told people in another episode was out of my love for Portrait of a Lady on Fire. If you haven't seen it, it's on Hulu streaming for free or for four ninety nine a month. I mean however you look at it, but it's really good. So definitely check it out. Um, it'll get the taste out of your mouth from <laughs> this season of Westworld. Oh my goodness. You can also find us at Pop Theologians on, uh, on Twitter uh, and Facebook. Uh, we post um, individually kind of like we live stream a lot of what we watch, but then we also kind of post on there as the Pop Theologians. Um, Kirsten, where can we find you? I want to follow you forever. You can find me on Twitter at Curse to Wander and on Instagram at Curse to Wander. I post an Instagram very infrequently and mostly go on there to look at recipes and foodie things on Instagram. And on Twitter, I post a lot about politics and academics and, and overthrowing capitalism. Always about overthrowing Always capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> Always and forever. Um, <laughs> Well, amazing. We are so excited. We have Kirsten with us uh, today because this episode has a lot to talk about. And before Marcy starts firing off at stuff and we start breaking it down, Marcy, what the f happened this week? Well, a lot's happened this week, actually. But we're still living in times of Rona. <laughs> Even if the South doesn't think it is, and even if I've seen my friends inviting their friends over to their houses, it's been a really weird week as the partner of a healthcare worker to see people actually take Donald Trump at his word or their governors. Like, this is when you decide to believe them. Um, it's, it's weird. Uh, I don't know about you guys. But like, I've had neighbors throwing parties, and I'm like, all right, well, two weeks from now when, when this blows up, and all the numbers go back up, even though the numbers, if you take New York City out of the data pool, have been consistently going up. They have not fallen. Um, yeah, it's going to be interesting. So and thanks I'm, to your husband, National Nurses Day. 
It is. It is. Um, so much love for any nurses listening, for Brent, our favorite nurse. Um, but yeah, I'm like jealous of people throwing parties and I like smell the carne asada and, I, and I'm like, I, I like haven't hugged a person in like 45 days. So it's weird. It's weird. Can I just say my, my partner sent me this article from the New York Times that was basically like, I know... I know I shouldn't be, or we shouldn't be talking about this because so many people are really suffering in quarantine, but there are some of us introverts who are really dreading going back to normal because he knew I had just said about how much I actually really have enjoyed quarantine, not because I want coronavirus or because, you know, for any other reason other than I really am an introvert and I have some social anxiety about going into groups anyway. So this has kind of been a nice solace so I get the not hugging people and it is really weird to have only interacted with my partner and like whatever randos we see on the street for basically the last month and a half. Um, but I also am like, I don't know that I want to go back to all the demands of like, so, and now you have to go to this outing and this party and everyone's going to want to get together and I'm just going to be overwhelmed by people. And that is not. Fun. And I want you to, I want you to feel like, I, I've, you're not the first person I have the, this conversation with. Like, it is okay to say, like, two truths exist in the same plane. Like, this quarantine and corona is unprecedented, horrifying. Like, none of us know what to do with it. While simultaneously, like, I'm really glad we shattered some of the system, particularly when it came to the ways in which we work as Americans. Absolutely. And my hope is that we don't go back. To that we take this time to have learned, one, it's going to be very hard to convince a lot of people who have worked from home overnight for 45 days and counting that somehow it is critical that their ass go sit in an office, that they commute, that they do all this stuff, um, but also um, that it's okay to, like, I, like, it's okay to say no to stuff that, like, um, that you don't need to do. So, like, I'm an extroverted introvert, so, like, I, I totally get it. Um, totally, totally get it. Uh, and think like Daenerys, like break the, break the wheel. Um, there's very, very difficult conversations that we as a society are about to have about like agency over our bodies and our well being. like who gets to decide if I'm safe, right? Like if my boss decides it's entirely safe for me to go to back, go back to work, does she have the, the legal right to do that? Uh, knowing that I work with someone who comes in contact with COVID victims every day, um, do my coworkers have a, any say in that also? So like, I think there's a lot of like really big conversations coming and my hope is actually similar to you. I was commuting close to three hours a day for a 15 minute, for a 15 mile. My job is 15 miles from my house and um, I would commute an average of three hours a day. So my, I'm with you. I'm like, ruin it, burn it all. And let's figure out new ways, more humane ways, like, that take into account, like, the disabled who've been saying for years, I, let us yes. work from home, right? I was about to say that aren't ableist, that yeah. aren't um, performative, too, in the sense of, like, um, I think a lot of people have been able to kind of flex. Those of us who are privileged enough to, um, if you read the New York Times this week, they had a really good piece on the different class systems this has created. Like, we are the most privileged class, the type that can actually stay home and work, Um but that takes also into account that eight straight hours isn't the way most of us work. And there's a much more humane way to work than that. Um, so yeah, no, I'm with you. 
I'm, I'm with you, but, uh, but it is still times of Rona and I'm very confused by the people who are dancing to the tune that it's not. I'm the Karen um, in the group. I'm literally like going over to my neighbors in our apartment complex and I'm going, I've, I'm going to them. You really, there are seniors in this building. You cannot be bringing people over. Uh, it is not okay. And I say to my funny little comical cute way. So they know, they don't know I'm really talking down to them and basically saying that they're, you know, putting people's lives at risk, you know, but I'm literally like, we have seniors in this building. Stop it. Like you also like, you don't need to have a dance party with three other people in your apartment right now. Like no one cares. Watch something on HBO. So (laughs) yeah, it's silliness. Um, One thing, one thing because Kirsten's on the call is that school is almost over and you're a professor. um, And I thought this would be a great chance because I, and we have many friends of the pod um, unless that's been um, trademarked and we're not allowed to use it. Otherwise pod save America, please don't sue us. Um, But you know, if we are able to uh, live and learn a little bit about lessons from zooms, past Kristen any things you want to say about uh teaching via zoom randomly from the middle of semester onward um be very careful when you allow annotation to students on the screen <laughs> because they will annotate the shit out of the screen so if, really? yeah oh yeah because you can like if you have a whiteboard up or an image up like if the link is like the the annotation window pops up for them they'll be like oh what's this and then all of a sudden you just get stuff and if you're lucky it's just nonsense on the screen if you're not lucky it's like dicks and whatever um (laughs) but but like it just kind of still baffles me like (laughs) i'm like they're adults and then i'm like i mean yeah i dressed up like carol baskins for a zoom call last week so i don't really get to judge i i was gonna say i'm like eh like it is what it is i it doesn't bother me my students for the most part have been actually really good in zoom meetings i just i have taken a, a lesson from them and when i have to sit in on a faculty meeting in which i'm not maybe super engaged it's really nice to be able to turn off the video and then i can yep. do other things while i'm still listening which i wouldn't be able to do if i were physically in the room mm-hmm. yep so you know no yeah, I, I mean so much so yeah and i like i've also learned to just say no to the again it's performative um what i call surveillance like in my sector like the amount of zoom calls increased like three thousand overnight um, we were using Zoom before, but um, but like if I don't feel like it, I've I have let go of feeling guilty that I'm not going to go on camera. Like I'm here. Like if you ask something, I'll respond. But like if it's just a day I don't want to do it, I'm not going to do it. A lesson for anyone listening that I didn't know is that your Zoom organizer decides whether or not the manuscript of your chats, including private chats, goes to them at the end of the meeting. So nothing's actually private on Zoom. Did you guys know this? Yes. Well. But that's I because I'm now. like, I'm, like I'm, I'm the one Sorry, who organizes John. it all. Yeah. I, I so. guess I shouldn't have said no. I mean, I figure I, everything's public, right? I, everything's not private. I have a coworker who has been shit talking our CEO uh, in the private Zoom chats and like, I never respond. And I'm like, huh. Huh. <laughs> um, but I also don't particularly feel like cluing her in. So um that's the Dolores in me I'm like watch it burn um 
But yeah, anyone listening, nothing's private. Your organizer can actually have the transcript sent. They have to decide ahead of time on the meeting, but just we have phones, y'all. We can we can text. We live in a surveillance state, right? Exactly. As Kirsten would say and, with Foucault. <laughs> and then finally, uh, for what the fuck happened this week, I was going to ask if you guys have been watching anything new or doing anything new. I have two this week. Um, one, I watched Normal People on Hulu. And it's a lot of, like, teen sex and a lot of, like, sadness. And... I so both it, loved it and hated it. I don't know. So I haven't. It really depicts everything that goes well, I was gonna on in say, our lives. I've heard really good things about normal people, but I, when you just said that, my my question is because I haven't watched it, but I did watch both seasons of Sex Education. Does it portray <sighs> sex in that way, or is it not that way? No, not in that way. Um, I would say that sex is actually like the like their sex lives are very the show reads really true to life to me. Like it, it, in the sense of like, it's two people who just keep missing timing in the mark with each other, but like are kind of in and out of each other's lives for a very long time. And like, like you see like their interactions, including in, intimate interactions kind of grow and blossom in a, into adulthood. Um, maybe it just feels very um, like, like I, I won't say that I like identify with either one of the two characters because they're like gorgeous, like waifs who like, you know, go back and forth into each other's lives. But I will say there's a part of you that identifies, I think like as that 18 year old kid with like your first love and like, you're kind of like, Ooh, like I remember feeling all of that. And I remember how epic it felt. And then, um, you know, then you turn decrepit and are able to identify as someone who was born in the 1900s. And it's just like, it's a strange place to take yourself back to. But, um, but, but honestly, I, like beautiful to watch, like it similar to the way I felt watching Fleabag, like where I was like, I love this. This is beautiful. This is so funny, but it's also like devastating. And I don't know if I'd want to revisit it. Um, so which hasn't, hasn't actually panned out. I've revisited Fleabag multiple times. Um, but, but it was good. And then the only other thing that I wanted to add before I ask y'all what y'all are doing is I bought Animal Crossing and I can't stop. And I'm addicted and um, I'm better at Animal Crossing than I am at my own life. Like, I won't let a clump of dirt grow in Animal Crossing, but my house looks like Great Gardens right now. So... Um, so yeah, that took over my life and I get it. And I apologize to anyone I made fun of when I was like, Oh, you're playing like some like janky, like Farmville. No, it's, it's way worse and it's so much better. So what are y'all doing? What are you watching? When I said, I said this to people when they were talking to me about Animal Crossing and I still haven't played it and I respect, you know, you can play whatever you want. I have no problem. I may at some point play it too. But I did, like, when they tried to, when people tried to describe Animal Crossing to me, because I've never played any version of that at all, I was like, oh, so it's like Farmville. And to see the crestfallen face of the person yeah, I no, said this I, to. Like, no one can get on some pedestal and tell me this isn't Farmville. This is Farmville, y'all. Like, and I played Farmville very proudly in grad school, John yes. and me, and I yes. never stopped playing. No, I it was, was like, Castleville. I remember I played Castleville. Ooh. But for everyone who's like, it's like a much more mature and involved game. No, it's not. We're picking up clumps of dirt. We're picking apples and we are bartering for them. I'm a slave to some chipmunk right now. Like 
it is a hundred. Yes. There's like grown men who are like, no, it's not Farmville. And I'm like, yeah, all right. I've been toying with it. So that's, I've like, every one of my friends has it. Obviously if Marcy has it, I'll probably get it eventually. Um, but like, come on over, <laughs> come on over. I need turnips. Isn't that a thing? Isn't yes, like do stuff with turnips? Economy. I don't it's, know. It's, it's nonsensical. It's, it's capitalism at its worst. And here we are. I have honestly, I need to finish the last season of Grey's Anatomy. I still watch it. I'm still a Grey stan. Come at me in the comments if you want to. Um, I think it's one of the best shows that's ever been on television. I will fight people. Shonda Rhimes is a storytelling genius. Also, evil, maniacal uh, mastermind as well. Um, I am still not over certain deaths. Um, I remember the exact moment when I fell in love with a show in college. So I'm watching, I'm catching up in the last season there. Um, and then uh, I uh, randomly am rewatching Veep because currently I feel like that is our political system. it doesn't feel that bad anymore, right? Like I would take her as president. It honestly is probably one of the best comedies ever on television i will fight people for that one especially in the like mid-season but the later seasons are hysterical i mean so i've been watching that but then also it was may the fourth be with you a couple of days and then yesterday was revenge of the fifth and so i um have been making my way slowly through the star wars movies not the television shows or anything like they have on disney plus because i have a full-time job i'm on too many boards and i don't got that type of time Kirsten, what about you? In the last week or so, I binged in its entirety Never Have I Ever oh. on Netflix. So good. It was really good. And I I mean, there are some things in it that I would say made me hesitate just in terms of like racial stereotypes and stuff. But um, I'm, I did really appreciate the main character a lot and I was a little hesitant in the first episode or second episode because the character was so all consumed with boys and I think you know the tendency could be for it to never pass the Bechtel test right if, but we all know the Bechtel test isn't like it's a you know it might be a, yeah. a, a standard way of trying to assess things but it can't always accurately assess it and in this instance like it was so clearly and I at the end of the season I was like oh this is basically like flea bag for teenagers and like went online and saw that other people had said and basically came up with the same thing so it's clear like you learn and this is not really a spoiler because you it happens within the first few minutes of the show that the main character's dad tragically dies and so the season really is about her complex grief and yeah um so I'm sorry, that wasn't a spoiler. It really literally it, it happens really, within the first really few isn't. minutes of the show. Um, Jeez. But the way, but the way she <laughs> deals with it, um, I just I thought the show really handled that well, and I liked the way they presented her character. And even in the even in her being sort of like quote unquote boy crazy, it's not at all in a stereotypical way. Um, and so I really enjoyed that and finished it. And I, I honestly think it took me like two days to watch all of those episodes. And then the other thing I'm watching right now is with um, William, my partner. He has never seen the old seasons of Top Chef, but that's one of the shows we really like and watch together because I love Top Chef and has been have been a Top Chef fan since it started. Same. So we are OG. We are, yeah, we just finished season three of Top Chef and we're working our way through all of the seasons. So he is like living for the drama, and I'm like, this they were so much more dramatic in those. Well, 
first couple seasons. It was trying to find its voice as a reality show, and I think it was trying to be, like, Survivor or whatever, but as the caliber of chefs got better and better because more people were interested in it, they stopped having to do the gimmicky reality show stuff. Mm-hmm. Such well, a good show. I'm I'm surprised you can watch food porn right now because it just makes me angry at like <laughs> not being able to eat anything that I want to eat. Again, from a very privileged place, but like I literally, my brother and I keep talking about our last great meal. We ha- went to this amazing Baja California restaurant that opened in Miami, and then two days later went into quarantine, and then it was like, oh my god, will they survive? And like I can't look at good food right now without being like oh what what is still alive like what what places are when we open up am i going to be able to actually see what went down so did you read that that story in the new york times from the chef of the um what's an i can't remember the name of the place but there was like two weeks ago it was in the new york magazine like the weekend edition of new york times and she is the chef and owner at this um, bistro, a French bistro in the East Village of New York, and kind of like chronicling what it was to shut down the restaurant and like her kind of dealing with, she's not sure whether it's going to open up again. Oh, I'm going to have to read it. It was really poignant and just made me go like, it's very sad because there's a lot of really good restaurants that m- may not make it through. So. And the conversation um, before we jump into the episode that's not being had is when they're like, well, restaurants can open at 25 capacity. 25% capacity can't actually pay the overhead to be open. So it's the same argument for people who are saying like, they'll open up Disney, but only allow a certain number of people in. Y'all fuckers don't know how much it costs to run Disney in a day. The reason we're packed in there like sardines is because it is the most expensive place to run a day, right? So, so I think it's it's also interesting that, like, again, revisiting like breaking the wheel, like a lot of things are going to have to be rethought in how we do it. So, well, but, speaking of how we rethink things, I was and about how to we say, continue to someone has make definitely sure, been looking at it. Uh, how we continue to break the wheel with or without Ugh. Marcy's full support. Why don't we break down the final episode of season three, Crisis Theory? Okay, so this is obviously Marcy's favorite episode and favorite show of all time. Hey, hey, I'm not like there's there's stuff. There's I like the the I like the title. So, listeners, how we're going to break down this episode because a lot of stuff happens and we have a lot of dangling plot threads and a lot of things that make us want to throw our laptops at the wall um, is that we have our top five takeaways that we did the last time versus a straight up walk through the entire episode. And then we're really going to talk about kind of the last few minutes of the show as well as kind of where we think this is headed because, as the man in black said, welcome to the end game now. We're in the end. So, we've got a lot to talk about. But first, and this is a continuation on what we spoke about last time and granted Marcy and I had had a beverage or two as a result of that um is that ain't no saver like a white male savior uh <laughs> this episode oh. definitely changes its narrative but we need to start breaking down the role of Caleb here the wise of Caleb the wise Why? of Caleb and and Kristen this was one of your main points you know I think you know is there a way to redeem this storyline? I don't know. I think it. they did something with it that maybe marginally opens the door for that, but I still say, like, after last week and having listened to the two of you break it down, I really agreed basically with what Marcy's response to it was. And 
I don't understand why. And I mean, John, you two have been saying like, I don't know that I really care about Caleb. Um, I think it still is sort of presenting him as like, um, he's supposed to be the one to save things and the revolution sort of rests on his shoulders. My question really is about whether or not Dolores prime has some sort of even end game beyond her own life for that. Like, is she still, is she able to sort of foresee anything that can change that? And for me, like, I do think there, there's a way in which Dolores's character functions like a kind of redeemer or a martyr in this episode. So she's almost, I mean, she could be painted out to be a Christ figure. Um, she died so that other people can live, but maybe there's a chance she could be resurrected. Um, so I think there's some really interesting religious comparisons happening there, but I still am like, I'm not sure whether or not within the established mythos of the show, that's actually going to happen. I don't I'm know. not sure if we're watching a, a Christ and Peter situation. Yeah. Um, but Christ and Peter is a complicated situation historically from a, from a narrative perspective as well. Um, depending on which kind of branch of Christianity you come from like right. for Catholicism, Peter took a real big step forward and Jesus took a real step back. Right. Um, and then having Dolores as an Eve kind of creator figure um, still puts her in the margins and, and still puts characters that we do love elsewhere. Like I have no idea what I'm supposed to do with them. Um, and but we agree. That's the point. I, I, that's the one thing that came at me in a way in which when, when Dolores said, um, you know, all of you are basically based off of me, like you were all my children, right? And then you see the figure like Maeve, this mother figure, the mother of Christ, you know, she has these motherly Eve Madonna type, like there's these tropes obviously going on here, right? And whereas Maeve seems to be accepted in a certain way, Dolores isn't because she wants to bring chaos into the world, right? But actually what we reiterate and she redefines in the in the actual story itself is that she didn't want to bring chaos into the world. She wanted to save the world um, and have them have that choice just like she did. And there's so much religiosity and there's so much dualistic language in this episode that Maeve, I feel like she didn't really know that she was based off of Dolores in a way because that seems to be a big reveal and choice is so powerful. But I just can't get it over the fact that it all then relates back to this white man that is supposed to like save both of these women who can clearly save themselves. I don't know. I think that um, at the end of the day, you know, we have to continue to look at the ways in which, you know, how are women continually scapegoated as parts of this narrative that I think is being uh, recycled a lot of the ways? I think they're trying to do something differently. I just think that it fails a little bit. I don't know. I think, yeah, no, I agree with you. I, I do think they're trying to push back at like what standard narratives are and they're very cognizant of what I think the viewers expect and they're trying to interrupt that in some way. I just am not sure it's entirely successful. So I like, I was thinking, okay, so maybe they can resurrect Dolores. Maybe she can come back in some way, but does that really make sense? And some of the pushback against the figure of Dolores this season has been from viewers who think that if she can't die a real death, then the stakes aren't there and that makes the story less meaningful or something. So I don't know. I, I feel like there has to, like her death has to mean something. 
in the show because the point of the show is not that death is meaningless. I don't think that's like you watch other things if that's what the point is that death is meaningless. I think that in this show it it isn't that and they're trying to say something else. I'm just still not sure they're successfully communicating that. Yeah, and then ultimately Dolores number 2, right? I mean, did Dolores because what we see is, you know, Charlotte, you know, Charlotte Hale being Dolores is she Dolores Prime in a way? Like, is there this original way because how she was morphed into now like this super robot that is like, no, you know, and that's where this experience, this nature versus nurture conversation we've had because like she can feel what that loss of Charlotte's family did to her. And she ultimately sees the betrayal, almost like the Judas's kiss of Dolores Dolores, who was supposed to be her savior. Um, not go down the path that she ultimately wanted, right? She doesn't go down the path of, you know, just their original plan, right? And Dolores actually kept that secret till the very end is that, and and the viewers as well is that, you know, she doesn't actually want to burn everything down. She wants to give people the choice to relive. And ultimately, you know, when death is concrete and we know that someone can't come back, like every time they kill off a major character on a show, it's like, oh no, this is sticking. And there's a reason for that. And I think with with the Dolores character, I'm actually okay if she's not in the show a lot next season because I need her death to mean something to me. And for me and Marcy, I know that this is going to hit you. I'm getting... What not hit you in a bad way, but maybe hit you in a good way because we talk about it all this time. And I would never strike you, Marcy, ever, um, <laughs> uh, ever. But what I'm trying to say is, is that I got from Dolores' storyline this season what I needed to get from Danny in Game of Thrones season eight. It gave me something different where I see, Ooh. I see Dolores's death at this end, that scene with her and Maeve, I needed something like that in Game of Thrones with Danny versus this crazy fascist dictator that they turn her into. But I needed that and I got it with Dolores, which is why I'm ultimately okay with where they put Dolores at the end of the season. Those thems are fighting words, Marcy. I don't know if thems are fighting Those words are for fight. you. <laughs> so I will I will say um I needed that type of a scene between Maeve and Dolores from a, from the place of, I couldn't figure out why they were fighting, right? We compared it to De- like Donnie and, and Sansa last week, right? Danny and Sansa. Um, and me thinking this is, this is men writing women, not knowing how women relate to each other and how they relate to power. Um, uh, so I will, I will say that there's something to be said about this kind of um, relationship uh, between May, fr- starting from Dolores being like, I made you, I gave birth to you, I was the perfect one, and then came all you, to her being like, you know, I, we're, we're fighting for the same thing. And like, th- that all makes sense, but that doesn't make sense with the season I've watched. I was going to say, the thing that really bothered me about Maeve and Dolores, like, I get that it's, like, you know, good television to, like, build up to these two godlike or god figures that fight each other, but it didn't make sense. Like, I, one of the things I walked away from the season with is, like, you made Maeve out to be the smartest host. Like, she had all of those dials turned way up, and yet 
she couldn't see through Ciroc. She couldn't actually understand this point of view. And so why it just felt fabricated so that you could have some kind of tension between them. But I just don't believe that Maeve would have felt that like there was no motivation for her character to side with Ciroc at all. I know her daughter, her daughter, her daughter, but why would she have sided with Ciroc when she could have just, you know, if she really thought Dolores was the problem, she could have gotten the information from Dolores herself. Right. Right. Um, again, I think it was a writing choice and I think it was, uh, it was a choice that led us on a pony show back to exactly where we've been. Um, it was, it was, ex- like a, it was glorified mud wrestling, their fight. Yes. Like, yes. I was like, I'm sorry. Like, I don't, I don't understand. I don't understand because we're back where we were. And also to not, to not trust the story enough to not trust that these women up against the system was an interesting enough story to be told is to me very similar to game of thrones an unforgivable decision by showrunners um we talked about this when we first saw aaron paul and particularly when we saw kind of what they were doing with caleb maybe like halfway through where i was like okay you don't bring on a star the caliber of Caleb to be a side character, right? And we all knew that from the second we saw him when the Comic-Con um, trailer dropped. Um, but the way that this has played out, um, it like he was brought in to what? To boost up Tandy Newton and Rachel Evan Wood and Jeffrey Wright? You don't, you don't need that. But yeah. what you said was that these women and people of color and their story against the system just wasn't like, no, you know, like the flavor that's missing here, like top chef, like the, mm, the lime, the lime that's missing to just judge this up as a short white dude. <laughs> I, that's so okay. true. I mean, and that's ultimately sure. like where I like with you, Marcy and game of Thrones season eight is I chose in my mind to remove Aaron Paul. Like actually I think from the last episode in so many ways. <laughs> and I just focused on the Maeve Dolores stuff. And I think that's the main question is, is can we get to this without the Caleb character? The answer is yes. It just requires the writers and the showrunners to think more complexly. And this uh, episode was written in part by a woman. It was directed by a woman. And I think these nuances that we're picking up on, the stuff that we wanted in the later seasons of Game of Thrones or other shows that just fail mercilessly, you know, like at, at doing this, they save it a little bit by being able to sprinkle in that because obviously bringing diversity into the writer's room and how you run the show and direct it helps um but it just didn't get there and that's why yeah i never thought i'd say this but like i would Uh like showrunners to be as unapologetic about their vision as ryan murphy is like Uh. here's the thing like yes agreed that like women writers women showrunners directors all have to swim upstream when it comes to incorporating you know a female lens in the way that they direct a female lens in the way that the writers room works diversity and and real representation so not diversity for diversity's sake but the representation of a multiplicity of stories of the human experience being brought in all of that like they're swimming upstream and yet 
I do think like that there is a bit of a bowing down sometimes to the idea that the only way to get this is, I think maybe where I get stuck on is I've, I've talked to a lot of friends who write in Hollywood and there's a pervasive belief that the only way to get a, a male audience, the only way is to center the goodness on a male character that like, that shows like Fleabag are a, a blip. They're not, they're not actually accurate. Like that, that, that shows centering around women don't pull in a male audience, right? Which the opposite would be that me, I've grown up watching TV my entire life and movies that like, I've never turned off a movie because it centered on a male, right? Uh, similar for people of color who have had very little representation with heroes at the center of their stories. Um, it, it's just, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so what you're saying is, is you have feelings. I have some feelings. Do you think, um, here's, my, here's my question though. Like, do you think that this is an instance, because in, it sounds like you're trying to give the writers, or maybe it was John, who's trying to give the writers and the director a little bit of credit here for what they did do. But do you think this is an instance of the executives saying, if you right. want your funding, if you want your show to air, you have to do this thing because demographically, this is what all of the, you know, um, test audiences say about this. Like, do you think this is an instance in which they're trying to work within the confines of a structure? Or do you think this is the creators of the show and the writers of the show really failed to try to season get... Season two historically did not do well. So I remember at the end of season two, um, there's a bunch of different, like, um, like I follow like Variety and Vultures recaps. Like I listen to podcasts on Westworld and the general sentiment was we did not know if we'd get a season three because the numbers had really declined in season two. Uh, so to your point, John, do I think there is, and, and Kristen, do I think that there was a strategic decision to cast someone from a very popular show amongst the demographic that they thought this show was being marketed to? Yes. Um, I, I honestly think that if the show had been doing very, very well at the end of season two, you have, you had and continue to have an extremely talented cast and you did not need to beef, beef it up. Right. Um, and I think that also, um, played into the decision of like, well, maybe people are tired of Westworld, period. And we spent an entire season getting a tour of a dystopian future because somehow we don't know what that looks like. Um, we didn't need eight episodes in, in, in the future adjacent dystopia that is, you know, the U.S. and the Westworld world. Like, we knew what it looked like. We knew that, like... John, we've talked about this. Like the Rico app, that storyline is so played out. We saw it in the Purge, we, like yeah. literally back to back. We saw it in the Purge, and um, the idea of like, like if to center everything on like predictive data and a surveillance state, like we knew that at the end of season two. Um, so so I, yeah, I do think that a big part of of how we ended up where we are right now was, and this is kind of counterproductive to how I feel about it, but was the showrunners loving the show enough to try something else to save it, maybe? 
or, and I don't think executives love shows. They see in dollars and signs, uh, dollar signs and whatever, but, um, and this is I'm, a really expensive show too. I mean, it is a is, very expensive show. I mean, and we are not going to get hopefully what I hope. And this season four keep, was confirmed. And no, it's going to, I know it's confirmed, yeah. but I'm saying for how long, two years again, they need to do it right. I mean, I think the end line is, you know, welcome to the end. You know, I think that we hopefully are in the final season, kind of like what they did with Homeland, which is another great show, which you all should watch if you're not watching it. But uh, it's, you know, I really hope they can think this way because kind of like you got yours, like you finally have your end show, like end strongly, you know, end in a way that gives the audience who've stuck with you these really complex storylines, which by the end of this episode, they've only kind of, made more complex, you know, because of who's there, who's on what, you know, who's on first, how much time has even passed between season three and what will be season four is a big question. Um, to really, I think, do it right and finish right. And um, I just hope that the show doesn't become, and I think it has been in a way, the need to have this white male savior both from like a money perspective, from a viewer perspective. But what we all know is you didn't need it from a storyline perspective. You even put the man in black and white. <laughs> you couldn't even leave Thank him you. alone. Thank like, you. I, I'm like being sarcastic, but like that's, a, like that's where I'm settling. Like this final episode is, I'm just not sure how we got to the man in white versus Caleb with two women sitting watching it happen uh and Sirach, the the ever-floating holy spirit <laughs> i i just don't know it's so confusing and you know and 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 speaking of things that are i think ultimately confusing and the writers have this for them themselves but free will right i think what this conversation is missing is that you know what we're really looking and trying to i think break down here is a really complex storyline about the biomechanics behind these hosts and how it interrelates to a human's choice for free will and you know Dolores's ultimate sacrifice for humans to be able to have that because she ergo didn't have it right and what that means and Maeve being a tool in some way shape or form to bring about that catalyst by her choice that she brings because yet again like in the end of season one she doesn't choose to go be with her daughter and she stays in to fight um and with Caleb finally being liberated to lead this rebellion, it's like so Terminator-esque of like lead the machine, that game's machine. But then also you have like, you know, Dolores, who I'm going to call Dolores Prime, Shaloris, right? <laughs> um, who's just pissed off, you know, T Teresa Hale. Uh, it's like, you know, we have a huge thing about trying to understand and break down the philosophical arguments that the show did so well in the beginning. but get complicated by some of the ways in which they just muddle up the story. I think I, that is the one takeaway from this episode that I really did appreciate is when, well, Dolores, I, I guess, I don't know who, which Dolores we're talking about. You referred to Charlores as Dolores Prime. I guess that's now that the other Dolores is dead, but the Dolores Prime, who was sort of masterminding everything when she I was about tells, to say, notice how we immediately assign, assign Dolores Prime to yeah. the murderous one. Yeah, right. Uh, um, but when she tells Caleb, like when he's like, oh, so you're saying 
I, you know, there's no free will. And she says, no, what I'm saying is free will is fucking hard. Like it's, it is possible, but it's really, really hard. And this is basically a point I give all of my intro to philosophy students. Every time we get to the unit on free will, when we encounter this idea that if we have these brains and these genetic makeups and brain chemistry and all of this stuff, and we come out of certain backgrounds that have constructed the way we think about things, et cetera, et cetera, on down the line, they're always like in the face of things, they're like, no, I have free will. And I'm always like, okay, so what did you have for breakfast? And they're like, oh, I had cereal. I'm like, why? And they're like, well, there was nothing else in the house. And I was like, oh, okay. So I guess you didn't choose to have cereal. You just had cereal because nothing else was there. And they're like, no, I could have chosen not to eat anything. I'm like, well, then why, you know, why did you choose to eat cereal? And they're like, well, because I was hungry. I'm like, so then it wasn't really a choice. Is your body telling you to do it? And so we go through, go round and round. I'm like, well, I could have chosen to buy a different kind of cereal. I'm like, well, why didn't you? And they're like, well, because I only like this kind of cereal. I'm like, well, then it's not really a choice because it's what you like. So like this ends up with my students always like, so what you're saying is we don't have free will. And my response is always, it's much more complicated than that. It's that, I, and as I kind of put in the notes to the outline, you can't begin to talk about having free will until you've really accepted and wrestled with the fact that you might not have it. And that's kind of the point that I think they do make with Caleb is that he gets to this point where he's recognizing how many of his actions have been predicted by the system, by the data, and how uh, Dolores Prime has actually used that to kind of position him in a way that she can best sort of set him up for whatever her master plan is. And it makes him feel like, wait a minute, maybe none of this is a choice. And it's at that moment where she's able to finally kind of break it open for him to say, it, it is possible, but it is really, really hard because all of these things are basically stacked against you having a choice. But if you're not aware of them, you can never make a choice. It's all about awareness and consciousness. It's almost like we're talking about cults. Oh, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I I will say um like on our outline it says free will is fucking hardy. Yes it is. Uh yes it is and I hope Kirsten that you give your students a shot at the end of that first class to get through the shock of recognizing that we don't actually know how to process our free will or even I think more complicated that there are times where we as humans desperately don't want it. Um, and so I think when we look at the, the show has spent a lot of time in this dystopian future, um, it doesn't happen by accident that you end up with the system. Um, so we, we were actually the beta test. Uh, we were all in college, I think when Facebook came out, right. Mm -hmm. And that was the first major I mean, for anyone who's about to like at me over MySpace, okay, guys. But that was like the first major uh, social media network that we came in contact with. And then from there on, like from there, obviously we've gone to Twitter and Vine and TikTok, hashtag my favorite, to, to a million other ways in which we have programmed, allowed ourselves to be plugged in, right? And people will say, well, have we? Do we have free, free will over that? Like, yes and no. Like, yes and no from an actual legal stance, right? We found out in many ways that our information's been tracked without us knowing. But also, yes, like I have signed away a lot of like the privacy that I have for the comfort of these things that kind of make me feel 
in control and connected and whatnot. Um, and I think like with Caleb, the realization that he wasn't in control, but that also who he was, was a prime target for not, for, for handing it over, for being susceptible to, you know, everything kind of that he went through, um, is, is, a is, it's, I will say with, like, along with Kirsten, it was the one thing that kind of hit me over the head as someone who's like, I have been in the mental space where I realized that a very concrete period of time in my life, I thought I had free will and I was acting very much not out of free will. I was acting out of like a a rigid structure that I had entered into contract with, didn't know what to do. And then when I get out, I'm like, oh, look, like I would have sworn if you had asked me at that time, I was acting completely out of free will. And yet there was coercion. There was a lot of other things there. Um, and then again, I don't know why Fleabag keeps coming up, but I always think of her confession. If you haven't seen the show, she confesses to the priest. Hot priest. Sexy priest, hot priest. She confesses that like maybe the thing she's most ashamed of is that sometimes she just wishes someone would tell her what to do. Like, yeah. tell me what the fuck to do. Tell me like what to put on, what to eat, what to feel, when to go to that's exactly it, Marcy. And I definitely think that the ways in which, you know, you break it down is that sometimes we just want someone to tell us what to do. Um, and that, you know, the system is set up in place for us to both feel like we have a choice. And I think that's even more poignant now that when we are ha- feel like we don't have a choice because we have to stay inside and we have to do what we're told and people are rebelling and they're saying, no, we have, we have choice. We have free will. We can go outside. Right. And we can do these things. And it's hard for people to hear that. And it's hard for people to actually move forward and think that they don't have a choice. And that's why it's always the biggest shock for students in philosophy classes when that happens and people are like, Oh shit. Like, you know, you mean I don't have a choice or I was born certain ways or like even when we start breaking down things like gender and we just basically, you know, at a, at a high level, tell them really what Judith Butler says, right? That stuff is really, really hard for people to hear. And, you know, you're the philosopher, Kirsten, you know, and you, you can more eloquently put this than me. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I think we're all just agents of already a capitalistic agenda that has set a certain path for us. And maybe it's even being lived through our very moments right now. Well, I agree with that. And I, but then I also say like, there is this piece of like the choices that then do seem to make themselves available to us are, um, are a different, like we envision free will, like I'm going to choose what I want to be. I can make anything out of myself. I can be whatever I want to be. And I mean, we can have a conversation about that, but like, you know, Marcy was talking and making this reference to Fleabag and that confessional scene in Fleabag in which, you know, she says, I just, you know, want someone to make choices for me. And I was thinking about the, like in, in existentialism, the idea is, um, that like Sart talks about, especially is that you, there's an anxiety of freedom, the anxiety that comes from knowing you have to make a choice that you have to do something. And that to sort of relinquish, relinquish control means, you know, you are living in bad faith. Um, while I don't always agree and don't really agree with existentialism's um, description of agency, I do feel like we tend to like 
we tend to frame this, and even in class, I frame this in this way that like Camus did, which is, you know, suicide is always a choice, right? Like it's choosing not to commit suicide is a choice. And, um, and while like we could have a whole conversation about mental health, I actually think we, most of us feel this existential dread in having to decide what to make for dinner every day, right? Like in quarantine, it's okay, I, I can't necessarily order out all the time, I don't have the money anymore, and you're telling me I have to stay home, and now it's for the rest of my life, like I've seen memes of people posting about like, adulting is basically having to decide what to eat for every meal every day for the rest of your life. And there's a kind of existential dread about that. So I think these two things play off each other. On the one hand, feeling like, are we actually programmed? We don't have free will. Everything is already sort of set up for us. And on the other, in the in those instances in which we feel like we are making a choice, we don't really want to make the choice because it's like making the same choice over and over and over again. And it feels like it's monotonous. This, this, this. I'm back. <laughs> it's so like, it's like, it's like when Sean says to me, we cannot have Chinese food every single night. And I'm like, yes, we can. Um, yes, we can. <laughs> but, you know, yes, we can. Si se puede. Uh, but, you know, what we can do is, yes. I mean, that is the the most, the simplest way to, like, really break down what this is. And I think if I had to talk about free will as a, you know, an existentialism in this one type of exercise, it's totally true. What are you having for dinner? What are you having for breakfast? What are you having for lunch? Like I'm literally at home and I'm just like, oh, it's 12 o'clock, right? I was up at eight. I had coffee. I had a bagel. Like I need to eat lunch now because then I need to eat dinner. And like I have food in my fridge that I'm like, it's spoiling because I'm like, oh my God, I cooked it. But did I really need to cook it? Could I have frozen it? I mean, you start going down this path, right? And I think that's ultimately where the decisions of this free will with Maeve are so hard to either kind of come about because you're like, well, if she had the ability to break the controls that Serac had regardless, cause she does um, at the end, then she just had to believe it. So where is this awakening? And did, and then how I read that scene is Dolores awoke that ability in her. Um, Cause Dolores is kind of like, you know, almost like a godlike figure in this way or the Eve like figure by saying, I died for choice. I died for them to have a choice, but I'm dying for you to have a choice to save our kind. Cause that's how I read the scene is that, you know, she didn't have that before Dolores because they were trying to keep them apart. But when they're finally brought together, Maeve understands I think maybe a larger role in the story. And I'm sure those are fighting words to Marcy. No, actually, like all I can think of right now is like women have been dying for choice for how long? <laughs> exactly. That's, that's all we do. That's all we do. You know, I, I do want, before we go into our favorite subject line about eating the rich, um, I, want do you, it. I want you both to give me a moment. And I just want to talk about the scene with Dolores and Maeve because it was, it saved the season for me. I am that bold enough to say it, that that scene was eloquently acted. Bravo to the both of them. Because you have to remember in the actual Westworld world, when they were like there, Maeve and Dolores didn't really have any They don't really interact. And that's where it's so funny to see like this past about them in the ways in which they never interacted and we're kind of realizing that as the story progresses with the scene, you know, but I just want to break down the scene because it saved, it saved the season for me. It saved me wanting to watch the show. I'm over Caleb. I just act like he doesn't exist. Um, but you know, it redeemed Dolores in a way for me that I think I've spoke about earlier on the episode 
that I needed in Game of Thrones season eight. And in terms of, you know, John, that's just your longing for female leadership. I that's know. what it is. It, it is. <laughs> it really, really is. But t- tell me about the scene. What did it give for you? Did you like it? I, I want to hear what you both had to think because we all have different thoughts about it. I can start. I thought the scene was beautifully shot and beautifully acted. So agreed with you there. Um, but I still don't know that I like where it ended up in terms of the narrative of trauma. So one of the things that Dolores ends up saying to Maeve in that exchange is that I, you know, it's, I remember all these things, of course, all of this violence happened and especially, you know, sexual violence to me over and over and over again, how many times she was killed. But she's like, I, you know, I look back and can only, I think, I don't remember exactly the line, but it's like, I can only remember, I only remember the beautiful things. And so that there was beauty in life. I understand the sentiment and um, I can appreciate again, like the, the way it was shot and the way it was acted. But to me, it just feels like if, if the show was trying to say anything about trauma, that's not what I wanted to hear in the sense that it just felt like, I don't know where or how we're supposed to understand um, how, how Dolores kind of processed or was healing from her trauma. Um, we get like, you know, she is sort of on a, a violent rampage in season two, and we think that has continued into season three at the beginning, but there's, I don't know. I don't know. I guess I'm just left with what you think the writer, and my question is like, what do you think the writers had in mind in terms of like how they were framing her response to trauma and her sort of moving through trauma towards some kind of healing? Ooh, buddy. I have feelings. <laughs> I would imagine. I have a lot so. of feelings on this. Yeah. Um, so this scene to me feels like a gaslighting 101 for the entire topic of trauma in the show. And, and I'm, this comes from both a personal and an analytical kind of like of the episode. Um, this reminded me a lot of conversations I have had with people about trauma in my life that when they get uncomfortable, they literally pivot to, but can't you see the good in X, Y, Z? Oh, boy. Yes. So no, that's I remember exactly what first, I thought. That is what it is. So the first time I admitted to my mom that I had experienced abuse within the Catholic Church, her immediate response was, but one bad priest doesn't negate the beauty of it. And I just, yo, like, that like when that is and and a lot of people for anyone listening my mom is a beautiful human um she yes. knows not what she not knows so <laughs> but you have a beautiful family a theory hey, we all know you love her brother okay <laughs> i didn't so, say that but so if like, the viewers and the listeners hear that then i mean that is knows. then this is it's how her. you choose to read Yes. But, but here's the thing. There's so many of us that have been through some very traumatic shit who have heard some version of this 
right? This is a narrative around police violence, right? Like when they say- I was about to say this is- It's not not that the policing system is wrong. It's that it's just one bad cop. One bad apple. One bad cop. Um, I hear it. I will go go even further. Like, um, after I got assaulted, um, the police officer (laughs) who looked at my file said- it could have been worse. Yeah, well, uh, uh, on behalf of Kirsten and I, <laughs> fuck that asshole. Um, continue. But I, Thank you. <laughs> I just want to say that for folks who have experienced trauma, that, that scene, the words coming out of Dolores's mouth are the words of an unfreed Dolores that we met in season one. They are not the words of a free Dolores that we know in season three. And for everyone who's like, well, what do you want her to do? To mourn her trauma and to be an angry motherfucker for the rest of her life? One, she gets to decide that. Two, there's an and or there. There is, there is uh, we can acknowledge the, the beauty in horror without eliminating the horror, right? With like, you do not have to say, like, I choose to see the good, because what that says is that there is an ability to turn off the bad. And that, that is, we've talked about this, police brutality is actually a really good example of this. Like, that is privilege at its finest, to say that I have a choice to, to choose to see the beauty, right? So for me, from the writing room, there, there's a dissonance here with the character of Dolores. There's a dissonance here with the stories of women and men who have been through traumatic stuff. Particularly here, we're talking about like the abuse, of, like sexual abuse. We're talking about violent deaths, murder. Um, I would love to know what the beauty is that the writers think Dolores sees, right? Um, because every, every single day she, she would wake up to her father, who she loved, right? And every single night, she was dead by a and million that different ways. Storyline went nowhere, by the way. The storyline right. with her father of Abernathy of a million different ways. So, I think John, the reason it resonates with you is because there's a part of us that wants that to be true. There's a desperate part of all of us that have been through trauma that wants to believe that we can choose. We can choose to like not feel it that we can choose to not be impacted by it. We can choose, you know, how it settles into our bones, how it settles into our fibers. And yet for folks who have been through very traumatic shit, let me tell you like what it's like to be totally fine and be triggered by something that you had no idea was going to trigger you and to realize that you actually have zero control to choose to see the beauty because the, the trauma and the damage lives in you in a way that you will be working out for the rest of your life. Dolores, even if she gets to some beautiful place and she's like out there hanging out with all the other hosts in heaven, still has to process this for the rest of her life. It will come out in different ways. She has to do a ton of healing. She needs a ton of therapy. And, uh, And the show just kind of gaslit Dolores, interestingly enough, in a way that I, I, I was like, I just, it's, I didn't, and I feel like it. 
it robbed us, the viewer, of watching that process, right? Because I feel like she yes. could say, like when she says to Caleb, free will is hard, she's probably saying it to herself too, right? Like she's made the choice not to be the the violent, just I'm going to mow everyone down in my right. path, right? Like so, and I always held out hope. I've said, I said this the last time I was on, I hold out hope for Dolores not to be that person. So we, we see that she did make a choice at some point, but we were robbed of being able to watch her wrestle with it and be and robbed it, of being I, able to watch that process. And that's what yeah. I'm like, how do you get from like point A to point B? We've not seen it at all because it was all happening internally. I don't know. And I would have been okay if that conversation had happened, let's say between Bernard and Stubbs. Um, I think it also lands very loudly for me because it was two women doing all of the emotional labor of the trauma in this world saying we'll forgive it because that is as women what we are asked to do time and time and time and time and time again we are constantly asked told to do expected to do um so it would have been interesting for me i think if one of the male characters had acknowledged what had been done and said and yet look at them still fighting for the beauty. Look at them still fighting for it. If it had been an acknowledgement of Dolores and Maeve's journey, right, in the context of the, their survival, their story of survival in a man's world, um, it would have hit differently. But do you, th- do you think that's what they're trying to maybe accomplish with the Bernard storyline? Because there was a payoff... <laughs> I mean, and that's, I, I mean, one of the points that I wrote about was maybe is this the season where Dolores was primarily there, but then in the next season she's not, and it's a Bernard storyline because he's ultimately, he is the key. We find out that Dolores never had the key, that it was always, she never trusted it to herself, that she trusted it to Bernard. Um, and, you know, he gets the payoff with his son and that woman and all of the stuff, you know, I don't know what they're trying to set up there, but... I just feel like there has to be more about that from that scene to mean something that they were trying to pull off. And maybe like, like I think that is the wait and see, right? Because we're gluttons for punishment and I'll be back in six years when this comes back. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking for gluttons, uh, eating the rich. So uh, as every day. Uh, every day. So as uh, Kristen point, pointed out, you know, never trust the wealthy. Um, and this is, I think we don't. Why eat- is that so hard for people to actually believe? Like believe them the first time when they tell you they don't give a shit about you. Like, so Rock's storyline basically is that like he was this very embodied version of white corporate capitalistic one percenters that think they know what's best for us that tell us what to eat tell us how to feel tell us what to do and then when that power is quote unquote taken away from them they're like no and then what's taken away from them by another white man which is another thing we could break down but another white man of a lower social status not the two women specifically that he thought he controlled right um it basically means to him that he's impotent you know that they've basically emasculated him in so many ways and you know that's where ultimately you can't trust that storyline even with the william storyline he's gonna save westworld so he's gonna not just save westworld or the world right he's gonna william you don't get to save westworld (laughs) you don't get to save westworld but he's trying to save the corporate system of which he helped build that made him who he always was. It just came out more. Um, and ultimately when he goes to see 
Dolores Prime, Char Loris, whoever she is now, the ultimate rage Dolores that's setting up a whole host of armies to come and take over and do the what they always thought to be the original plan was, he has a different ending. This reminds me so much of um, like Mark Zuckerberg and his wife uh, position themselves as these like very liberal um, kind of savior figures uh, from, from Silicon Valley. And the second the government and the people were like, wait, the fuck are you doing? They turned Republican and conservative real quick. Not named, but they really did. They were like, yeah, you don't get to look at shit. You don't get to decide shit. We just, it was such a quick turnaround in the sense of like how they portrayed themselves publicly towards where their lobbying dollars ended up going. Um, so, it's the same thing in Veep in one of the seasons the when they when she goes to Clovis and she, the guy that owns Clovis, which is basically supposed to be like this Mark Zuckerberg Krieg or Krieg or whatever his name is. And he's like, I don't follow politics. And then they talk, talk, talk. And he's like, but I do want to talk about the global import tax on technologies. Right. And she's like, well, I thought you didn't follow politics. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, look. Going back to Kirsten's, like, our, our fundamental question every night is what to eat. The rich. If you get anything out of this story, it's the rich. Um, and we talked about how we thought maybe the reason Dolores had a soft spot for Caleb was that he was the first person she had met who was not privileged, who was not unimaginably wealthy, who maybe had some system of empathy she had not encountered before, Right. And I do still think that that um, comes into play. I'm always wary of Hollywood um, very righteously being like wealthy equals no empathy, no, no morals, uh, non-wealthy equals morals and empathy. And yet, um, because it just kind of feels like hollow from a, from a sector that consistently kind of uh, eats the poor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but I mean, yeah, I mean, you you took a whole season to show me that rich humans are bad, and it's 2020, bitch. Like, <laughs> no. Marcy, though, I think I think if I'm not mistaken, and not that I went back and listened to all of our episodes all over again. To oh God, set, what were you right about? To set this moment up is that um, <laughs> Dolores always knew she was going to go to Caleb, and I yes. said, I, and you. Maybe disagreed with me, um, but uh, I'm just allowing you to have this space. I'll, I'll give it to you with a caveat. You were right, but I don't think it's a solid writing decision. And I'm okay with that, and I'm going to take it. But you were right. You were right. You were right about a lot of stuff. I will say, in going back and kind of listening to some of the stuff, we were we were on on certain things. Maeve definitely got the kill, as Kristen calls for Ciroc, whether or not he lives or dies. I think it's maybe implied that he's dead, or he's so impotent, in quotes, that you know he has no more power, although he's a white corporate capitalistic man, so I'm sure he'll find it again. Um, he's not the big bad anymore, you know what I mean? But you were right, Marcy, about the Bernard stuff, is that there's ultimately so much that they're wasting, and maybe they were wasting it for a reason, and I hope that payoff comes in the next season. I just feel robbed. Like, I yeah. feel robbed of Jeffrey Wright. I feel robbed of Bernarnold, which was one of my favorite characters because Bernarnold was the epitome of coming to terms with what free will is. So why waste it? 
Why well, waste it on a buddy cop 10 episode arc that makes no sense? Like, well, look, again, I love the extra Hemsworth. Like, I get it. But I was like, I, there was never an episode where I was like, where are Bernard and Stubbs? No, every time they would pop up, I'm like, oh, these guys. Because yep. like, it, it just didn't, it, it didn't prop up any of the plot. Um, See, and, and I feel I, like, it would, I, sorry, I did cut you no, off. No, no. I, I would have, I think it would have made a lot more, maybe this is the postmodern in me, the, the Derrida deconstructionist in me, that it would have made better sense to pull out all of those storylines and because they were in it so little and that have them be like, well, yes, but like to make them be post credit scene after every episode. So like in this sort of like Pomo way, you pull them out and have, because they really aren't central to the narrative, except in that one scene where they encounter Dolores in that one episode. But it would have been really interesting to sort of, or like a webisode kind of thing where you would have them cross over. So like narratively, I think it makes more interest, it's more interesting to do it that way where they cross over in that one episode mid-season and then keep going. So like you have Stubbs kind and, of like, and Bernard like Top the, Chef last chance kitchen kind of yeah <laughs> the theme of this episode is how many times we can weave in top chef into our overall narrative but speaking of you know overall narratives and kind of getting into the end game as literally as they say you know where are we going like what burning questions for season four you know really at the end of the day when we start looking at what I hope is the last season. I mean, I think it will be. I'll make that projection now. I, I hope it, it has to be in so many ways. Um, but, you know, burning questions. So, you know, I said Bernard's lack of appearance in the seasons and majority of Dolores is like, I'm actually okay if Dolores is really, or Evan Rachel Wood's character is really minor in the next season. Um, but that's one thing that I, that's one of my biggest burning questions. I mean, I typed right into Google when this was over is Evan Rachel Wood no longer on Westworld basically. Cause you know, when they off a character, it's a big deal. They didn't, um, make, it wasn't that obvious what they were doing, but I, I'm really curious as to what's going to happen there. Yeah, I think it'll, it'll be interesting to see whether or not there's any more to that Dolores's plan and whether or not the new Dolores slash Charloris, Haloris, whatever we want to call her, whether she, like, whether that was sort of anticipated by the Dolores that gets killed, and, or whether or not this is just going to, like, to sort of um, devolve into some more sort of chaos. I'm really curious, like, of course, the end credit scene is like the, po or so to say the post credit scene where we find out that there is a host William or a host in black is how I call them. Um, my question is like, where, where and when did that host get created? And so like, it's connecting the end credits, post credit scene from last season with this season, because last season we see a host William who doesn't know he's a host kind of entering and encountering a daughter right. um, that's dead. But my, my question is, who created that? Like, did William himself, he didn't seem to know that he was a host, like that there was a host body. So the question is, was that part of Dolores Prime, the one who died in this episode, is, was that part of her plan? And now Haloris, Charloris is doing something else with it? Is it something, I, like, that's where I'm like, that, that is the one question I kind of have, is like, where did that pearl come from? 
how did that get tested and how long was there between what happened post-credits last season and what happened post-credits this season? That's a great question. We saw a lot of pearls in the episode where, um, where Maeve like breaks free from the simulation, right? We saw kind of like, we compared it to... Um, the Matrix? The Matrix and uh, oh, Minority Report. Right. Uh, just like these like extensive kind of files. I'm going to guess that getting a William Pearl would not have been difficult because he pretty much lived in that park for years, cycling and cycling and cycling. So they'd been co- collecting his data for so long. But who got it, right? Like, because I, my understanding is that the there were only a few pearls that survived, that all of that stuff was, I mean, I know right. they torched the host bodies, but some of those host bodies had pearls still in them. And because we know, correct me if I'm wrong, Dolores came out of the park with five pearls. She yes. Did. Right, and so we but they were have, all her. <laughs> they yes, were five copies of herself, right? Right. That that was my understanding was that they were five copies of herself. But then I'm like, how many Doloreses did we meet? We met the Char. We met Char Loris. Show. Uh, what's his name? I know Marcy. Remember when Char Loris transferred all the data after she was discovered? That's what's happening as a result. She took all of the Delos IP right. and, ran, and ran with it. So that's where we're getting to at the end here, where she's like in Saudi Arabia. I don't even know where the hell they were. I can't remember. I just rolled like, my eyes at the idea that next season is a William Redemption arc that ends with him and Dolores on the same footing of some sort. Um, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, no. Like, I, mean, I don't how need many a sides are there Redemption now? story. You know, that's the thing. Like, you know, Kirsten, that's a great point. Like, you know, how many sides are we? So we have team Caleb Maeve, maybe, you know, team Bernard Stubbs, if Stubbs even is like still alive in that freaking tub, um, you know, team Halora. He's like the Witcher. He's like in a bathtub for too long. Yeah, exactly. Still haven't watched that show. Um, <laughs> team Haloris, Host in Black, Team Ciroc, maybe. And then, right. you know, so, you know, we have... And everyone that's that's left still hanging. Like, I still am not particularly convinced we have seen the last of the folks who crossed over. Um, because that's a really strange thing to just have them cross over and we don't get a peek into what that looks like. Um Bring back a Ketchita. That's who, that's that's the only person I give a shit about. I'm like, bring him back, or bring give back me season one and end season two with the Ketchita episode, and then they all ride off into the sunset. That's that's great too. You know there there are there's so many plot lines. It's, there's it, there's a lot of different narrative threads that feel messy, that don't feel distinct. Um, and part of that is the nature of the fact that we have multiples of, of a ton of characters. Because um, then, like, with this final end scene with uh, host William, that host William is no longer culpable for everything human William did, right? So it's a brand new slate. And we know that from Char Loris, when, which I was right, John. The second they become Dolores, they stop being Dolores, right? It's, 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 that's it. The second they start experiencing their own life, they're no longer that pearl. They're a complete separate entity. So technically my frustration at thinking that somehow William host is going to be redeemed is me being angry at original William. William host hasn't really done shit yet. 
Um, but other, but that, other but, than kill William, but yeah. do you other think kill original William, William is dead though? Like, do you think original William is dead? I feel like that's what they're trying to do. Yeah. Whether they're successful is a different question, but I'm pretty sure Charloris and Host and Black were trying to kill William so that Host and Black can become William to the world, so that no right. one actually knows that the real William, the human William, is dead. Yeah. Which again, this like that weird side plot that she had put shit in his blood. I was like, I what? I don't care. What? Yeah. When? With what time? With what? Where? So with what test? <laughs> ultimate that, question, right? It's yeah. like, what was that shit? Like, I mean, like that's the thing. It's like this is where writers succeed or they fail, right? It's like too much is, I think, obviously toxic if you can't handle it, right? And this show started off really strong in the first couple of episodes. You know, I would say the first five, four episodes were really strong. Like, you know, and then it kind of starts going downhill. Because What number was genre? Five. Five. Okay. I will I vote. I will say first episodes one through five are really strong for me. One through four. <laughs> One through four for Marcy. Yeah, genres were Marcy. Genres where we lost Marcy, to say the least. But Marcy still hasn't seen Watchmen, which she has to do. Um, and uh, once she sees Watchmen, I think she'll feel very differently about genre. And again, like this show is a moment in time, too. And I think, um, I think we're living amongst chaos right now, right? So the show hits a little differently than it might've hit like a year ago. Um, like we're all exhausted, right? Like we are physically, mentally exhausted and, and so, traumatized and traumatized. And so the show psychologically hits a little bit differently, but also like, I'm not sure I have the same kind of patience and, and benevolence I had in the first two seasons to be like, I'm sure they'll wrap that up. Whereas like right now I'm like, you know, I could just be watching, like, Never Have I Ever, which is just telling me a story, and I'm following it, and I want to get to a point. And this is this is interesting, because, like, this unfortunately goes back to the reason, like, Brent and my brother stopped watching this show. They got very sick of the mystery box inside a mystery box inside a mystery box. And when I have described the season to them, when I was like, there's five Doloreses walking around, they were like, yeah, no like no enough like why are you still there and i'm like because i can't figure out which one i'm i don't know how to quit you <laughs> i don't know how to quit you um it's it's it yeah i just think it's an interesting there's going to be plenty of time to forgive and forget before the next season and you'll have plenty um, of time to rewatch it and then betray me like you did with the game of thrones season eight com complete betrayal i still think it was an awful season ending I'm not as, maybe because I could burn everything to the ground right now. And because I no longer view that as a moral failure. I'm tired. <laughs> We're tired. I'm tired. Go well, ahead. Well, listeners, well, me listeners, too. you know, we are so glad you stuck around with us for another yes. eight episodes of Pop Culture Theologians. Kirsten coming on the pod multiple times this season. Um, Marcy. She is the best of us. She is the best of us. Mar That's Marcy, definitely she is not true, us. but thank you. Um, you know, and in the encapsulated part of time that this season will be in, we'll always have the, the times of the Rona right now as being our opening. And we're going to be coming back um, in a couple of weeks with another season um, after Marcy and I 
take a pause um, with some stuff. We're going to bring you some special bonus content. Um, we actually because- dr- dropped some hints in this episode without anyone realizing it. So, Without anyone realizing it. So <laughs> You're going to um, do Top Chef. Yes. <laughs> starting with season one, going through season 20,000. Yes, exactly. Break down that knife chop for oh, it. Break God. it down. I am triggered, triggered <laughs> as the Gen Everyone Zers stay say. safe, stay healthy, uh, stay awake, <laughs> since I know we're all napping, and we'll let y'all know when we're coming back, but it's been a pleasure to, to both love watch and hate watch the show with you. Which I love, and Marcy also will love when you come back to this episode 100%. on another date. <laughs> Hi, everyone. When I run out of Netflix, I'll rewatch this and I'll love it. And then y'all will hear about it. <laughs> Bye, Bye everyone. Bye.